Well, as most of you know, I'm taking the month of July off from preaching as uh, we get ready for August. Uh, we're, um, I spent the last three days up at the cabin uh, writing out uh, sermons for August and uh, really excited about where we're headed in the coming months. And so be, be prepared for, for the first of August as we uh, jump into a new series uh, through the month of August. Uh, and then we will be uh, starting a new series in September uh, looking at the book of Joshua and the story of Joshua. And so uh, be praying that we are strong and courageous uh, as we enter into this season of the church. Um, I'm very uh, thankful for the opportunity to, to have some breaks from preaching and thankful for some very gifted voices that we have uh, that have been sharing uh, with us through the month of July. Uh, next Sunday, we'll have Brent McCall in for two weeks, and uh, he'll be sharing with us. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we've had a Stuart and Esther Love that have been sharing with us. And so today, we have uh, Riley O'Rear, who is a familiar face uh, to many of you. Uh, he's spent a little bit of time at this church um, <laughs> growing up here, and so we're excited to hear from him uh, this morning. So Riley, if you want to come up, I want to pray for you and our time in the Word. God, we thank you for uh, the, the giftings uh, that you place on each of us. And so, God, I just pray right now that you will uh, speak to us this morning uh, through Riley, uh, that uh, he will deliver your words to us. And so I, I pray for him a, a sense of your peace, uh, a sense of your presence as you work through him this morning now. We're thankful for all that you have done to prepare him uh, over the years. And we're thankful for the work that you continue to do in his life. And so God, we, we listen now to your words. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, over the last two weeks, uh, both Stuart and Yesa started with a message of gratitude, so I suppose I would do the same. Uh, as I stand up here and I look out, I see family. I see blood family, but I see a lot more than just that. I see family in Christ, family who has helped raise me, family who has been there my whole life. They say it takes a village to raise a child, and I am living proof of that, as some of you know. But I stand here in gratitude, thanking you as my family for teaching me, raising me, for loving me. So thank you. This last week, I had the awesome opportunity to spend the entire week up at a Ponderosa Christian camp. Um, in the, the days building up to it, I believed I was going to be a counselor until Friday morning before camp, I was contacted by Curtis's, or not Curtis, Jason's uh, mother, Cindy, when she asked me to teach. This was a day and a half before we get up there. So I spent the whole week working with a bunch of ninth grade and eighth grade boys working through the Sermon on the Mount. And boy, can I tell you, what a blessing that was. What a blessing. Those boys were magnificent in their desire to learn and understand the words of Jesus, to, to dive into that, and in their curiosity as to what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We talked a lot about the idea of the salt, light, and the good life. 
and what the life is that Jesus is calling us to in the Sermon on the Mount. But a really pertinent question that came up several times, and funny enough, we had actually planned to talk about, was why should we live this good life? Why should we do it at all? Right? I think it's a really relevant question, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today. So how many of you guys have ever done something for the wrong reason? Man, we got a lot of people out here who never do things for the wrong reason, that's for sure. I know I have. In fact, this last week, I did something for the wrong reason. Every year at camp, we have a volleyball tournament. And it's a lot of fun. It's a four-on-four. We play, and it's, it's just kind of having fun. And I had, a, I had a team that comprised of me, one of my good friends, Aaron, who was a counselor, my little sister, Paige, and one of her friends, uh, Gracelyn. Now, we, we were a pretty good team. Obviously, you know, Paige is going to go play college. Gracelyn plays at El Dorado. Me and Aaron are, well, decent enough to not make those two uh, too disappointed. But when we were playing, I really wanted to win this tournament. Oh, man, I wanted to win this tournament. And we played through, and we got to the final. And the final was like a three-team round-robin thing, double elimination. It was kind of confusing. We ended up playing five straight games to 15. Eliminated one team, lost to the other team, played them again, beat them, and lost in the final. Ended up losing the tournament. Oh, I was so disappointed. I was so disappointed because I wanted to win that tournament so bad. After the tournament was done and I kind of cooled down from my competitive nature, I realized that I had been in that volleyball tournament. I'd been playing for the wrong reason. As some of you know, Paige is going to be going off to college here in about a month. She's going up to George Fox University in Newburgh, Oregon, which is about 30 miles south of Portland. She's going to be going to play volleyball, and also she's going to be going up to get a degree in biochemistry so that she can go to med school so that she can become a pediatric oncologist, which is a doctor who works with kids who have leukemia. Right? And so in a month, she's going to be embarking on this journey. Now, me and Paige have a really unique sibling relationship. We, sure, we have our fights, but we don't fight as often as others. And we understand each other on, on a really deep level. We both have no problem. In fact, we take a lot of joy in saying that we're each other's best friend. Right? And volleyball is something that Paige loves. And we got to play in this volleyball tournament together something that we haven't got to do a whole lot, and we're not going to get to do a whole lot. But I was so focused on winning that tournament that I missed the awesome opportunity that that was to spend that time and experience that with my sister. I think a lot of times we think too much about the reward and not enough about the experience. I think the good life is something that we do this a lot with. We think too much about the reward and not enough about the experience. So this question of why do we live the good life? What's the benefit of living the good life? To answer this question, I want to turn to the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 20, 
starting in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage, about a denarius, and sent them out to work. At nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At noon, and again at three o'clock, he did the same thing. At five o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again and saw some more people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one hired us. The landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers together and pay them, beginning with the last first. When those hired at five o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested. When the workers hired first saw this, they assumed that they would receive more. However, when they were paid, they received a full day's wage. They protested to the owner. Those people worked only one hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us, who worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? Upon first inspection, this seems to be a tale about rewards. It's a story about what we get when we work for God. The parable starts out with this really common phrase in the Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of God. This phrase and a very similar one, the kingdom of heaven, are used throughout Matthew's telling of Christ's story to help us understand what the kingdom of heaven is like. Right? Often, people take this to refer to a place. More specifically, it refers to heaven. So when we read it, we read it as, in heaven, this is how things are. Right? If we view this parable through that lens, this lens of in heaven, this is how things are, this is the message that we receive. It doesn't matter how you live your life. It doesn't matter when you come to God. You could be a lifelong believer or convert on your deathbed. You'll still make it into heaven. While this is indeed a true statement that our Father does accept all and anyone who come to him, as shown by Jesus' response to the criminal at the cross saying, today you'll be with me in paradise. The idea that you can live whatever you want, live however you want, and still get into heaven just doesn't match up with the rest of Jesus' teachings. See, there are implications through this understanding that are, in fact, quite against what Jesus is talking about. First, first it implies that the primary goal of being a follower of Christ and a child of God is to get into heaven. Now, while Jesus certainly addresses heaven and even talks about its existence and our eventual entrance into it, Jesus' message isn't aimed at heaven. Jesus' message is all about how we live life here, focusing on others, and how living that life allows us to fulfill our original uh, purpose as God's creation, which is to be objects of his affection and love. 
Second, it implies that you can live however you want. Sin as much as you like, then come to God at the end of your life and get off scot-free, much like the workers who stood around until five and got paid a full day's wage. You see, it just doesn't fit with, with Jesus' message. It certainly doesn't fit with the Sermon on the Mount, right? Because if this was the, if this was the whole point, why would, we, why would Jesus have talked about the Sermon on the Mount 2,000 years ago? What would be the point of listening to anything that he says, right? Because the Sermon on the Mount, it's a really challenging, challenging bit of Scripture. It's a challenging sermon. Don't get angry. Don't lust. Don't worry, right? Remove the log in your own eye before removing the speck in your brother's. It's nigh impossible, I would say, to live that kind of life, right? So why would we want to live it at all if we can just get off scot-free by coming to God on our deathbed? You see, when we view this parable inside the larger body of Jesus' teaching, it just doesn't fit, doesn't match up. However, if we shift our perspective, if we change our understanding, things start to come into focus a little bit. Do you remember how this parable starts off? In the kingdom of heaven. That's where our understanding has to change, specifically with the word kingdom. Now I'm going to get a little bit technical here, so stick with me. A lot of people think that the, the word kingdom is a descriptive noun. It describes a person, a place, or a thing. It's actually a verbal noun. It's a word that describes an action or a state of being. So when we look at it here, the kingdom of heaven is not talking about a place because a kingdom isn't a place. There's no point you can point to on a map, a location, and say this is a kingdom. A kingdom is a, a political institution. It's a place where a king or a monarch reigns, where his laws, his decisions, his word dictates how daily life works. So when Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is like. He's not talking about a place. He's talking about the rule and reign of God. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like. The reign of Jehovah is like. This is the way things work when God is on his throne, when his law dictates the way life works. Secondly, we often think that when it says the kingdom of God is like, we think it's a future, right? When we get to heaven, or when heaven gets here, when the rule of God gets here. Stuart's already talked about this several weeks ago. The kingdom of God is so big that it transcends this whole idea of past, present, future. God was on his throne. God is on his throne now. And God is going to still be on his throne and has yet to fully realize his rule. Right? So Jesus is saying, this is the way things are now. This is the way things are going to be as well. It's a current status of the way things work. So let's look again at the parable, but with this new understanding. The kingdom of heaven is like. The rule of God is like. So the rule of God is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them the normal daily wage, about a denarius, and sent them out to work. At nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around, doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At noon, and again at three o'clock, he did the same thing. 
At five o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again and saw some more people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one hired us. The landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at five o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more, but they too were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people worked only one hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you've paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as I paid you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? Hmm. This is no longer a story about rewards. It's actually a description of who God is. It's a description of how God's relationship with his people works. See, it's a story to help us understand the way God treats us. God is, is a ruler. He's the landowner, per se, right? Now, in the parable, we're told that the landowner has a foreman. A foreman's job was usually to run the day-to-day uh, aspects of the landowner's estate. So he would go out in the morning, find the workers, bring them in, tell them what to do, negotiate a fair price for services rendered, and then at the end of the day, he would pay them. But in the parable, it's the landowner who goes out and seeks the workers. See, in the same way, God comes and seeks after his people, right? It's this idea of a God who chases after his people, who seeks them out. There's an idea in a in a movie, not a movie, a television series, I don't remember the name of it right now, of a reacher and a settler, right? People who are in relationship occupy one of these two positions. The reacher is somebody who is reaching for the other person. That person they're reaching for is a settler. They settle for somebody that's kind of below their, their, what they deserve or something like that, right? I think in the relationship with God, we all know who the settler should be, right? God the king of the universe, this great, immense, powerful being. We should be the ones reaching for him. But God flips that logic on its head. God instead says, I will reach for you. I will come after you. To some of us, he comes to us early in our lives. Myself, I've always known the church. I've always known God. He comes to us early in our lives and says, hey, if you live with me, you live for me, if you live this life, I can promise you these things. I can promise you love. I can promise you grace. I can promise you forgiveness. And I can promise you acceptance. You just have to trust me. And we, being humbled by the fact that this crazy, immense, powerful being, the ruler of the universe, has sought us out, we, we say yes. And we set our feet along the path and begin to walk that life, at least the best we can. But God doesn't stop there. See, just like the landowner in the parable who goes out again at nine and noon and three and five, God continues to seek people out. 
It doesn't matter if you're 22, 42, 82, 102. It doesn't matter where you are. God continues to seek you out. And he says, hey, live life with me, live life for me, and I'll do what's right by you. Notice that God doesn't say what's fair. Just like the landowner in the parable tells those he hires later, I'll do what's right. God says, I'll do what's right. Because if God did what was fair, what we would get would be separation. Separation from him and all of the good things that come with him. But no, God says, I'll do what's right. And just like the landowner in the parable who says, I can do what I want with my money, God says, I'll do what I want with my creation. I decide what's right. And so if I want to give you love and grace and acceptance and mercy, then I'm going to give it to you. And there's nothing that anybody else can say or do that makes that different. Right? So we serve a God who is good, who's good enough to chase us out and seek us out. And we serve a God who is kind enough to do right by us. But we have to trust that he will do these things, just like the workers in the parable had to trust that the landowner would be true to his word. Well, how do we know that God is going to be true to what he says? Let's take a look at the larger story of God. In Genesis, he talks to Abraham. He makes a deal with Abraham and says, your descendants will make a great nation, and all people will be blessed through your line. With King David, God says, a member of your line will sit upon the throne of Israel forever. In Jeremiah, when God's people are being torn down, destroyed, enslaved, and shipped off to who knows where, never to return to Israel, God says, I will restore you to myself, and I will make a new covenant with you. There's three promises. Where are the answers to those promises, the fulfillment of those promises? Jesus Christ, a descendant of Abraham, blessed the entire world, all people in it. Jesus Christ, a descendant of the line of David, sits upon the throne of heaven forever. Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice on the cross, restored us into relationship with God and created that new covenant that God said he was going to make. So there's three for three. That's 100%. I think God's pretty trustworthy, don't you? And so we know that we serve a God who is good enough to love us. We serve a God who is kind enough to do right by us. We know that we serve a God who is trustworthy, who keeps his word, and is powerful enough to make it happen. I've had the incredible opportunity to attend several naturalization ceremonies. Whenever Jim Brownie is presiding over one of those, he tends to ask some of us to go and sing the national anthem. And I can tell you these are awesome opportunities. How many of you guys in here know what a naturalization ceremony is? So a naturalization ceremony is essentially a, a, a court proceeding where p immigrants who are applying to become citizens of the United States officially become citizens. Right. 
Now, I'm a natural-born American citizen, as are most of us in this room. I was born here in the good old U.S. of A. to two parents who were also American citizens. And because of that, I am protected by and entitled to all the rights of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, and everything outlined in the Constitution. I get those because I've been born here, I've lived here my whole life. But these people, these naturalization ceremonies, once they say the oath of citizenship and the judge accepts it, they too are entitled to all those same things. Now they haven't lived here, they weren't born here, some of them may not even speak the language that those rights are written in, but they are just as protected to and just as entitled to those rights as I am. I'll tell you, to see the tears of joy on those people's faces, the first time they recite the Pledge of Allegiance, something we take for granted, after they have been made citizens, oh, it's powerful. It's powerful to see that. Because they know that they've been accepted into a place where they have a chance to do something greater than they, than they ever could. A place where they have a chance to live a life better than any they could in their original home. See, in the same way, we are invited to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, of the rule of God. We, having received grace and love from a God who is good and who has done right by us and who we can trust, are prompted to live the good life, right? The life that he outlines in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And those naturalization ceremonies, before those people can become U.S. citizens, they're prompted by the presiding judge to obey all the laws of the United States, to defend the Constitution, and to renounce any allegiance to any foreign power, king, nation, whatever. Their new life is dedicated to the United States. When God invites us into his kingdom, into his nation, to live under his rule, he says, I want you to live a life that speaks to my goodness and my grace. And you have to renounce anything that you held allegiance to before. I'm the one who sits on the throne. Live a life that speaks it. You see, this is the reward of living the good life. Not that we get to get into heaven, but that we serve a God and get to live a life that talks to his goodness, his kindness, his trustworthiness, and his grace. The reward isn't in what comes at the end. It's in the actual living of the life. In the volleyball tournament, it didn't matter whether we won or lost. It didn't even matter that Paige was a veteran volleyball player and I had only played a couple of years. Just like the workers who worked all day and the workers who worked only one hour. What mattered was that we were playing together on the same team. We were spending time together, engaging in an experience that was larger than either of our individual selves. The point was not the reward of winning. It was the benefit of that relationship. In the same way, the benefit of the good life is not the reward. The benefit of the good life is the relationship that we have with our Father. The benefit 
is knowing that even though we can't ever live up to the expectations of the Sermon on the Mount, we have a Father who is good and who is grace-filled. We don't have to worry. We don't have to worry about trying to take the log out of our eye, though we should. We don't have to worry about not getting angry, though we should live in a way that we don't, or at least try to. Because we serve a God who is good and who is on his throne. There may be some of you today that are sitting here that haven't, haven't, put, your foot on, haven't put your feet on that path, who haven't said, you know what, I want to try and live that good life. Maybe you were weighing out the end, go- the, the, the end goals. What's the benefit of living the good life? What's in it for me? That's what's in it for you. Now, I personally can't promise you anything, but I know a guy who can. I can't personally promise you what will happen in the end, but I know a guy who can. If you want to take that step, if you're ready to set your feet along that path and to live that good life, we invite you to do so now. We're going to spend some time in prayer, some time in song. There'll be people up here up front also in the back, who are willing to talk to you about these things. If you're feeling the Spirit's prompting, I encourage you, stand up. Join us. Join the family of God. Go ahead and stand.